So if you have your Bible with you, I would encourage you to turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 18. And it, it's good to be back um, preaching. Um, I was away from preaching here for a couple weeks because of the, the birth of our uh, second daughter. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, the last time we were in Luke together, you'll remember that we were looking at uh, a parable of Jesus um, that he gave to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And there was this parable of a, a Pharisee, this seemingly upstanding religious person who seems like he has everything together, who goes up and boasts of his righteousness before God. And then the tax collector, the person who would be viewed as the, the sinful, the low of the low in society, who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, and the point that, that Jesus made at the end of that was that one of those men went home justified. One of those men went home saved. And it was actually the person who humbled himself, who acknowledged his sin and the fact that he couldn't save himself, not the one who was boasting his moral resume, that our call is actually to come before God as little children. And today, though, as we look at verse 18 on, uh, this is the, the story of the rich ruler. Uh, in the other Gospels, he's called the rich young ruler, but here he's just a rich ruler. And this is touching on that same theme of, of what role does our goodness, our moral performance have in salvation, in getting into heaven, in inheriting the kingdom of God. And so again, this is, this is Luke chapter 18, and I'll begin reading in verse 18. If, if you don't have a Bible with you, this is printed in your bulletin. Uh, you can also download a Bible app on your phone, like the ESV Bible app or the, the Version app, or just type in Bible apps, and they'll come up, and you can go to, to Luke chapter 18. So listen as I read. A ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there was no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this life 
and an age to come, eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we long for eternal life. We want to know what it takes to inherit the eternal life, to inherit the kingdom of heaven. So, Father, we pray today that you would shine the light of your spirit through this text. We know that it it came through the inspiration of your spirit, through the pen of Luke, um, but it is also illuminated by your spirit as we read it. And so we pray for eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would soften us to be able to receive your words. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if so I know some of you, as, as parents, have guided students through the, the application processes for, for college, or maybe you've done that process yourself, or you have friends who have gone through it. And you know that, that one of the first steps, if you're going to apply to a school, is that you have to look at the admissions requirements. Uh, you, you look at what's the GPA range that they require from high school. And so do you, do you fit the GPA range? You look at what they require, is it the, the SAT or the ACT, or the SAT or ACT, it's been so long, I'm getting my acronyms mixed up. But, uh, and, and then you say, well, you know, what's the score? What score do I need to get? How can I go about studying for the test? Is there an application deadline? Is there an application fee? So there's a lot that you have to check off your list in order to get to the place of actually being in school. But if it's true that students have to think about the admissions requirements for school, then as we think about our lives spiritually, as we think about the scriptures, we think about heaven and hell, then we can ask a very similar question of of what is the admissions requirement for the kingdom of heaven? Is it selective? Does God let everyone in? And if he lets some in and not others, then what is the the standard? What is it that you have to do? How do you inherit the kingdom of God? And some of you might be saying, well, that's maybe an interesting question, but it may feel like the how many angels can dance on the head of a pin kind of a question. It's, It's a fascinating philosophical question, but maybe not something that you spend a lot of time thinking about, that you want to focus on on practical questions of of life and how to live in the the here and now. But really, the question of the the admissions requirements for the kingdom of heaven is one of the most important questions that we can ask, that we can face. And it's important to ask it sooner rather than later. Because even for a student, if they wait until the day before the application is due, and then they start trying to, to complete the requirements, they're not going to be able to do it, that they have to start early thinking about it. And it's the same for us, that what we don't want to happen is to actually get to the moment of death. We don't want to be on our deathbed and just then begin to consider the hard questions about heaven and hell and about what God actually requires or, or doesn't require. Uh, we, we can't wait until the deadline passes before we face these questions. And thankfully, that's what we see here being discussed in the the passage that you see in front of you. What are the admissions requirements for heaven? And so if you have your Bible still open, I would encourage you actually to keep your Bible open. And if you don't have 
it with you. You can even just keep your bulletin open to where the passage is there because we're going to be working our way verse by verse through this passage. And so it would actually be a lot easier to follow the discussion if you have it there and you can track as we walk through the, the passage. And so let's start with the, the first verse in this text, verse 18. You look there in your Bible. It says that a ruler asked Jesus. And by ruler, he, it means that he's this influential person, a, a leader in the community. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so that's essentially the question that I was, I was talking about. That's, that's saying, what are the requirements? What is needed for admission to the kingdom of God? And this, of course, is a good question. And I wish that more people in our society would ask that question. That so often we don't ask such a good question. Is it, are there certain ceremonies we have to follow? Are there certain rules to observe? Is there some hidden secret that you, you buy a book and then it gives you the, the secret to life and you unlock it and you're able to, to live and figure out the, the true spiritual reality? Is that how it works? So again, this is a good question. But at the same time, it's also kind of a bad question. Uh, and it's bad more in the way in which he asks it. It's, it's a good question asked in the wrong way. Because he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And if you know the context of the teaching of Scripture, uh, the New Testament, the Old Testament, the Scriptures teach that we're actually not saved by what we do, but by what Christ has done for us. That we aren't saved by a list of good works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we, even when he asks the question, he's assuming this framework of salvation by good works. And I think that if somebody came up to me and said, good pastor, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, and that I probably would start right at that place. And I would have said, well, it, you can't do anything, and we're all sinners who fall short of the glory of God, but thankfully you can look at, to the cross, what Jesus has done for you, uh, not saying what you can do for God, but what God has done for you. And I think that if, if that was my answer, it wouldn't have been a wrong answer theologically, and maybe even for some individuals, that could have been a good way of answering it. But of course, Jesus answers it far better. And he doesn't answer it the way that I probably would have answered it. Because look at verse 19. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And so instead of challenging his view of works-based salvation... He moves in that direction with the man's view of goodness. And it was actually the most seemingly innocent part of his question where he said, good teacher, what should I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus is saying, whoa, wait a second. Why are you calling me good? And you say, well, isn't he good? <laughs> I mean, he's the, the sinless savior, the, the son of God. If anyone is good, it would be Jesus. But of course... This isn't claiming that Jesus isn't good or that he isn't God, but Jesus knows that this man doesn't know he is God in the flesh, that he's God incarnate, 
fully God and fully man, that he thinks that Jesus is just another good teacher, another good rabbi. And so Jesus is saying, essentially, what is your standard of goodness? Do you think that I'm a good rabbi because I'm better than other rabbis or I'm better than people who aren't rabbis? That God alone is good, that he is the standard of goodness. And I think that if you were to go onto the street to your neighbors, to your friends, and you asked the question about admissions requirements to heaven, if you said, what does God require? Probably a lot of people would say, well, be a good person. That's really the only admissions requirement for heaven, just be good. And regardless of people's religious views, as long as they're good, they'll be able to get into heaven. But then you could ask a, a follow-up question and say, okay, good people are the ones who get into heaven, are you a good person? And I think that, again, most people would say, yeah, I'm a good person. I, I've never murdered anybody. I'm better than Adolf Hitler. I never committed adultery. I think I'm pretty good. But then you could ask even a third question and say, all right, so the admissions requirement is goodness. You're a good person, but are you a perfect Person? Are you morally perfect? And I think then that most would say, no, I'm, I'm not perfect. No one's perfect. We all make mistakes. We all do things wrong occasionally. And so then I think if you really press, what does it mean to be good? Then essentially what we're saying is that goodness is more of a comparison. It's, it's grading on a scale. It's saying that, that I'm good because I'm in the, the top half of my class maybe even the very top of my class compared to others, that on the horizontal plane, I'm pretty good because that's your standard. It's what other people are doing around you. But what Jesus is saying here right off the bat is that that's not the measure of goodness. That's not the standard of what goodness is, that the standard and the measure of goodness is actually God himself, that none is good except God alone. And so therefore, if you line up to the moral, holy, righteous character of God, then you can be considered a good person. But if you fall short of the glory of God, if you don't line up to the holiness and the moral perfection, then according to the Bible, you're not a good person. Because it's not measured on the scale of how other people are doing around you. And that can be hard. That can be a hard pill to swallow because we like to think of ourselves as good, and we don't like to see ourselves as, as bad. But again, Jesus says, none is good but God alone, implying that we in and of ourselves are not good. But of course, after this then, Jesus goes even further, and he challenges the, the rich ruler's view of goodness, and then he starts to move into his assumption about works-based salvation, what I was talking about. But he does it by going with the premise of the rich ruler, because in verse 20, he says, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And so Jesus is saying, all right, you want to be saved by works? It's really not that complicated. Just, you know the Ten Commandments, follow the Ten Commandments, and you can get into heaven through good works. And you say, well, 
that, that seems pretty straightforward. And I, I find it humorous almost that he rattles off some of the commandments. Uh, don't murder, don't steal, as if the, the man doesn't know them. And I wonder in some ways if he might have been slightly embarrassed at that point because Jesus is giving the most basic Sunday school answer to maybe what he felt like was this, this deep, complex theological issue. And he's saying, do you know the Ten Commandments? Follow those and you could be saved by works. And so here the, the rich ruler, here's the standard. And so I can, you can imagine the wheels start turning in his head that, that essentially Jesus has handed him this ruler this measure of moral performance, and he starts taking that measure and putting it against his own life. And at first, he actually thinks that he's doing pretty well. He says, I'm a good person. I've never murdered. I've never committed adultery. I've never borne false witness in the court of law. Maybe I'm pretty good. Maybe I can actually earn my admission and my way into heaven. And maybe that's where some of you are as well that you read the Ten Commandments and you say, thou shall not murder, check. Thou shall not commit adultery, check. And so you say what the man says here in verse 21, all of these things I have kept from my youth. So I'm doing okay. But then what Jesus does is he takes this wrecking ball to this man's self-righteousness and his self-confidence, and he just demolishes his sense of, of self-righteousness and ability to save himself on the basis of works. Look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, at first, it, it seems here like Jesus is changing the rules on the man, where he had just said, well, if you want to be saved by works, keep the Ten Commandments. And then the man says, well, I've done that. And then he says, well, here's something additional to that. And so was his first answer even correct? What is Jesus doing here? And actually, I had a, an interesting conversation about this passage with a friend in college where we were discussing Christianity. And, and he was saying, well, the Bible, you can't really trust the Bible. You can't take the Bible seriously. You can't take the Bible literally. And I, and I was saying, well, I do take the Bible seriously. I think the Bible's the, the word of God. And I take it literally in the sense that I think that once I understand it, according to its genre and in context of the, the whole of Scripture, that if I understand it, I'm obligated to follow it. And he said, well, what about the time where Jesus told that man to sell all of his possessions and give them to the poor. Didn't Jesus tell you to do that, essentially? That, that if you're really taking the Bible seriously, and if you really think that, that this is what is required for eternal life, then why do you have a bank account? Why do you have any material possessions? Because it seems like you're going against the direct words of Scripture. And thankfully, I'm not sure I would have known how to answer it, but I had just heard a sermon on this passage before that conversation uh, that it helped me understand what is going on here. Because the man had just claimed, I'm good. I'm keeping the Ten Commandments. And what Jesus is doing is that he's taking the, the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me, and he's essentially testing to see if this man is actually keeping even just the first commandment, that, he, that he's saying, you shall have no other gods before me, 
And so is God really number one in your life? Do you have a lot of money? Perhaps money is your God. And so are you willing, if called upon, to give up your money in order to follow me? Or if it came down to a choice, would you choose your money over me? And of course, as we see, as Jesus asked this question, this enormous idol is exposed in the man's heart. And of course, we can do the same test with ourselves. We say, is God really number one in my life? Because you look and you say, maybe according to the world standards, you're, you're doing pretty well. You're morally good compared to others. You're not doing all the really flagrant bad sins that you see in all of your friends. But yet, if it came down to a choice between your money and God, or a relationship in God, or your family in God, or your dignity in God, or your life in God, would you really choose God? And are you looking to something else or someone else in your life to say, if I have this thing, then I can be happy, then I can be complete, that I'm not completely happy without this, and there's no way that God can fill the hole of this thing in my life. And if that's true, if that's what you see, then yeah, you may not have an enormous statue to Baal or some other false god in your house, but you have this enormous statue to something else in your heart, and you're worshiping that thing and relying on that thing and putting that thing in the place of God, fearing that thing rather than God, trusting in that thing rather than God, relying on that thing rather than God, that as much as you think that you're keeping the Ten Commandments, you're actually breaking the Ten Commandments and can't make it based on works. Of course, Jesus stops then with the first commandment here, but he could have kept going with other commandments to show how, uh, even though we might have some sort of surface obedience, that that's not enough to say that we're truly keeping the moral standard of God. I'm sure that many of you have read the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus, where he really gives an exposition of the Ten Commandments and the moral requirements. And he takes the, the Seventh Commandment and does this same basic exercise where he says that you, you say, you shall not commit adultery. And you look at your life and say, well, I've never cheated on my spouse. Check, I've got that commandment down. And Jesus says that really underneath the surface of the act of adultery is lust. And that if you have lusted in your heart, that you've actually broken the seventh commandment, even if it hasn't fully bloomed into action. And so again, each of the commandments are deeper. And that the only way that we can think that we're keeping the commandments is either to lower our standard of the holiness of God or to, to fool ourselves and try to raise our own estimation of our goodness and our sight, but it won't work. And that's the point here, that when we put ourselves against the standard, we lay out the measuring line of the, the commandments of God that reflects the goodness of God, and that we come up short every time. And therefore, we cannot earn admission to the kingdom of God through our good deeds, through the things that we do in this life. I think that it's helpful, actually, in that point to, to think of the admissions picture for students. So you can think of a student who goes to a, a not-that-great high school, and uh, she does pretty well in her classes compared to her classmates. She gets a lot of Cs, um, a couple B-minuses, not that great, but most of her classmates drop out of school. They don't complete high school at all. They 
fail completely and have to repeat grades. And so when she compares herself to the other students in her class, she's saying, hey, I'm actually doing pretty well. But then you can imagine this hypothetical elite university that doesn't just require high grades, but requires absolute perfection. So to get into this school, you have to have a 4.0 GPA going in. You have to get 1,600 on the SAT. You have to have a perfect score. You have to write a perfect essay, have a perfect interview, have perfect service. And so at that point, the student would look at it and say, even though I'm doing better than my classmates, I can't even apply because it's actually too late. I've, I already have a C average in my classes. And so if they require 4.0 to even be considered, that I can't even apply. There's no way I can be admitted. And that's the way that we can think about admission to heaven, that God's standard for salvation by works laid out in the Bible is perfect, perpetual obedience. Perfect, saying that, that there's no flaw in it. We always do the right thing for our entire life. And perpetual, because we keep on doing it. We never give up until the end. And so if you can say, I've perfectly and perpetually obeyed the law of God, not only in action, but in heart, then theoretically, according to the Bible, you could earn admission to heaven through good works. But of course, then we all know that, that we have failed in, in little ways, we've failed in, in big ways, we've failed to perfectly love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, we've failed to perfectly love our neighbor as ourselves. that what you could say is that essentially our spiritual GPA is already down. And so as we, as we consider admission to the kingdom of heaven, it's already too late if we're going to approach it according to works. And of course, the, the rich ruler, as he sees this in verse 23, he goes home sorrowful and says that it's because he had much wealth, that he, he wasn't willing to leave everything behind, that money really was his God rather than the God of the universe. So then look at how, how Jesus then responds as he goes away. And I'm not sure whether Jesus says this after the man is already gone or whether he's still there, but it seems that he's addressing the crowd more so than the man at this point. And he says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And that is a, a sobering comment about eternal life, that he says that it is difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. You might say, well, Will, haven't you been saying that, that no one can earn salvation through good works? That we have all failed and we've all fallen short of the glory of God? So why is Jesus here then picking on rich people? Why is he picking on people who have wealth? Or is he implying that somehow the, the poor have an automatic uh, get-out-of-jail-free card, that they can make it into heaven more easily than the rich? What is Jesus saying here? And I think that, that there's a couple of things going on. I think one is that as we consider those who are doing really well economically on the outside, that often that can blind people to actually considering spiritual questions and actually facing the, where we are spiritually. Uh, when we first started planting Hope Church, uh, I would go around to business leaders in the community and just trying to learn about the, the area. And one of the questions I would ask is, what do you really love about this area? 
and where are their problems, where are their struggles, where are people having a hard time in different ways. And, and they, when, they, when I asked what was good, they would list all kinds of things. But when I said, are there struggles, are there problems, people would say, no, no, it's all good. And, and the implication was always, well, the problems are other places. It's in Philadelphia. It's in surrounding communities where there's poverty. But we have good schools. We have money. Therefore, we have no problems. And that I, it always took a lot of pressing to say, yeah, but is there depression? Oh, yeah, there's depression. Is there is the opioid crisis here? Yeah, oh, yeah, it's, it's definitely here. That, that all of the, the, the spiritual problems are there, but people feel like they're immune to it, and they don't actually have to face those questions, that they have this band-aid on it because of material wealth that keeps them from getting the help with the spiritual physician that they actually need. <laughs> but then also I think that part of it is, is that people can assume that the, wealth, the wealthier, the, the good people, are the ones who have everything together. Maybe this is a, le a little less so in our American context right now where people often talk about the, the top 1% with disdain or there can be animosity towards the wealthy. But I think that, that even now, and, and especially at this time, there could be a sense of, well, the wealthy are really the ones who have it all together. They're the ones who uh, God has blessed with wealth. Uh, they're like Solomon, who God gave them wisdom and wealth. Uh, they are, are doing well because they worked hard, because they have a good work ethic, because in some way they're, they're morally superior to others, that, that some people have wealth because they're better, because they work harder. Some people don't have wealth because they're inferior that they didn't work as hard. And that, that idea can be popular sometimes in our, in our world. And I think that that's the heart of what Jesus is doing and why he's especially pointing out the fact that rich people, those who seem like they're, they're moral and good and they have everything together on the outside, cannot be saved by works. Because those are the people that those looking on the outside would say, though they have it all together. They have God's blessing. They're, they're really the good, upstanding people. Now, sometimes you'll hear people try to, to soften the warning here against the wealthy by saying that there is a gate in Jerusalem called uh, the eye of the needle, and that uh, to get camels through that gate, you had to take off the packs off their back, and they would bend down and go through the gate. And so what Jesus is saying is not that it's impossible for the wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God, but it's just more difficult. And so as long as you take off the packs that, that it's possible, uh, it's just a little bit harder. And if you read the, the commentaries on this passage, uh, most of the ones that I read said, no, that's a myth. There's really no evidence historically that that was the case, that there was a, a gate called the, the needle. But even more so, I think, in the context, as we're looking at what follows here, that Jesus isn't saying that, that salvation for the wealthy is really difficult, but he's actually saying that it's completely impossible. Because look at how the crowd responds in verse 26. He says, they say, then who can be saved? So they get it. They're saying, if these good, moral, righteous, wealthy, blessed, upstanding people aren't going to be able to make it, then what hope is there for the rest of us? Who can even be saved at all? And that's why Jesus says in verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so, yes, salvation by works for the rich, for the poor, for anyone is impossible. It's as impossible as trying to fit a big camel through a teeny little eye of a sewing needle. You can't do it. 
But then you say, well, if it's impossible, is there any hope? And maybe then at that point, you're tempted to go away, like the rich man in our passage, in despair. And you say, wow, I came to church today, and all the pastor did was tell me that I'm not a good person, and he told me that I, there's nothing I can do to get into the kingdom of heaven, that I've already failed, that I've already missed out on God's requirement. And so either you, you're really depressed, or you don't pay attention to what I'm saying. But I think what the rich man here in our text was missing was a follow-up question. He asked his initial question. But then when he heard the impossibility of salvation by works, he just went home. He didn't have the reaction that we saw in our last sermon in the book of Luke of the Pharisee who, who went up to the temple, humbled himself before God, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That what he's saying is that, no, I recognize I'm not good in myself. I recognize that God alone is good in the Holy of Holies. I recognize that I haven't perfectly kept the Ten Commandments, that I, that I have no right to claim admission or a right of admission into the kingdom of God. But what I'm pleading is not my own righteousness, my own goodness, but I'm pleading the mercy of God in my place. And that's ultimately what this meal here is about. It's about God himself doing the impossible. The impossible, according to human wisdom, being possible through the work of God. Because if we could just pull ourselves up and save ourselves by good works, Jesus wouldn't have needed to come into the world. But we read in Scripture that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that through him we might receive adoption as sons and daughters of the king. And so Jesus came into the world, he came under the law, and of course he was the only truly good person, as fully God, as fully man, in one person. He perfectly obeyed the Ten Commandments in action and heart, that if anyone in history could have earned his way into heaven through good works, it would be Jesus. But as we will see, when we read the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles Creed, it says that he descended into hell, that Jesus took our sin upon himself, the punishment that we deserve on himself. And so when we say, sorry, God, I, I can't do it. I can't keep all the rules. I'm not good in and of myself. And as we trust in Jesus for salvation, looking to him alone, that our sin is counted to him on the cross, that his righteousness, his perfect goodness, his perfect record, his perfect moral GPA is applied to us. And so we say, well, what is the admissions requirement for the kingdom of God? When we come to the throne of God on the last day, will we present our own moral GPA? Well, no, that's not the moral GPA that we present. We actually, by God's grace, through his mercy, are going to be able to present the, the moral GPA of Jesus himself in our place to, be, to gain admission, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done for us.